The posse comitatus could not possibly come at us because the president is mad at someone trying to combat us. Bartlett's usually a badass, but his hands are tied and sad as it is to see him struggle. It's potent to watch him juggle a morality that's muddled with a faith already addled and reluctancy to saddle the presidential horse for battle. So the president is rattled by moral absolutes he's shackled and he can't tell how to handle when what's right seems like a scandal and what's wrong inevitable. He knows a public rant will only serve to make things worse so he doesn't sing a verse about Sharif inside a hearse. So Fitz can't just point his gun, cause the president is under some laws that make him wonder exactly what's the fair route. The things we choose to care about. Does the president have room to doubt, or must the baffled king stay composed, not rattled? Cause he chose to fight the political wars to win, and he rose over his foes, victorious in the war, still seeking the glorious peace he fought the fight for, fully informed of the fact that he can't act on the fiery feelings our presidents are supposed to calculatingly lack. So will Jed do what's right or will he sin? Must he do what's wrong simply because of his presidential win? If only we could just get back to the days when we just let Jed Bartlett just be Bartlett instead of this conflicted president. Hi, and welcome to Jed Bartlett is My President, a podcast about the West Wing and denial. My name is Lonnie Diane Rich, and every week I take an in-depth look at an episode of the West Wing along with a special guest. And for a little while, we pretend that the worst thing happening in the White House right now is the president planning to secretly assassinate a world leader despite, you know, various laws against exactly that kind of thing. This week's episode is Posse Comitatus, the season finale for season three. And here to talk with me about it is my special guest, Robbie Herlocker. Robbie comes to us from Oklahoma City, where he hosts Hamilton the Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the story, music, and history behind the hit Broadway show, Hamilton, an American Musical. Robbie is also an amateur poet, an outspoken Christian feminist with a degree in biblical studies, a former youth ministry leader for 12 years, and a passionate political activist who once slept outside of a senator's office for two weeks until he agreed to lift his hold on a funding bill for humanitarian aid. A relative newcomer to the West Wing, Robbie has been binging it nonstop with his girlfriend Liz, hi Liz, every evening after their toddler's bedtime as long as they aren't distracted by work for her dance studio. Welcome, Robbie. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, Lonnie. It's great to be here. I don't know whether I told you this or not, but you're kind of the reason I started watching The West Wing, so it's really fun to be here now discussing it with you. Oh, yay. I'm glad to have that influence. I like being the typhoid Mary of these things, you know, like getting (laughs) people addicted to it and watching The West Wing, which is awesome. And by the way, at the top of the show, I played this amazing rap that you threw together (laughs) right before the show and sent to me. And it was so awesome. And so I hope everybody really enjoyed listening to that because that was fantastic. What do you do? How do you do that? I mean, I've seen you do it a couple of times and it's amazing. Like, is this something you've been working on or is that like a natural talent? I, you know, I grew up and was not very good at expressing my own emotions. And so Mm -hmm. I was always hanging out in my head and suppressing Mm -hmm. my own emotions. But once I discovered poetry in high school, I realized that that was a safe way to be thinking about emotional responses. And so I could kind of structure my emotions into this, this heady thing that was poetry. And so I, I kind of went to poetry without the emotional attachment, but the heady part of it. And I found that this really connected my heart and my head together. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really weird, but I, now it's just more of a second reaction to me where if I hear two words that rhyme in a sentence, I suddenly start thinking about, well, what's the next word I could say in this sentence to make it rhyme again or <laughs> how that works. It's, it's just a lot of fun. Um, honestly, Hamilton and American Musical 
helped bring some of that out in me again because I listened uh-huh. to Lin-Manuel Miranda freestyle left and right. Oh, yeah. And it, it's just so much fun that I, it made me think, oh, I want to try to do that again. I want to get back <laughs> into it. So, yeah, it was just, just, it's just a fun thing I do for just on the side. It's so cool. And I mean, the thing is, whenever somebody has a talent that I have absolutely no talent, like I can't, poetry is not my thing. It's never been my thing. It's not who I am, you know, but I like, uh, am so amazed by that. And especially that ability to do that kind of like rap style, that really fast, you know, syncopated kind of, of words, you know, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And it's the kind of thing like that, that facility with not just the, the meaning and the context of the words, but the actual sound and the rhythm and the heartbeat of them is something that I think, you know, Aaron Sorkin in his writing has, you know, he has that ability to make music from words just spoken. And it's it's such a cool thing. I love it. Absolutely. Words per minute. The West Wing is a place where Hamilton would feel at home. I know, really. <laughs> so many words per minute. So speaking of Hamilton, I have a question for you. Okay. If you could take a character from Hamilton the musical and put them in this show, who would you pick? What would their role be? And would they be singing? That is a great question. Oh my goodness. Um, first of all, whoever I pick, of course I would want them to be singing. I mean, yes. <laughs> I'm one of those annoying people who wholeheartedly believe that the world would be happier if everyone just broke into song and danced from time yes. to time, right? I mean, if I have any complaints with Aaron Sorkin's writing for the West Wing, I mean, chief among them is well, probably the normalization of misogyny, but also high up there on the list would be that he he never took the opportunity to write a musical episode of the West Wing. No, I mean, well, the thing is, every episode is almost a musical episode with the yeah. way that his dialogue is, you know? The cadence of everyone speaking. That would be so good. And also, just imagine Toby rolling his eyes when his staffers come through singing, uh, I'm going through the motions, and they're just, <laughs> just handing him paperwork all day long. He would hate it, and I would love watching oh, that. Oh, and that would be fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to think about that. That would be amazing. <laughs> so, anyways, I mean, as far as who from Hamilton and American Musical would I like to see take a job in the West Wing um, I mean that's, that's pretty easy, easy honestly I mean as fun as it would be to import the entire first Washington administration to see how different mm-hmm. the government is today <laughs> right? I have to choose one of my favorite characters in the entire musical Angelica Schuyler uh, she's something isn't she oh man she's so ridiculously smart Oh, yeah. And she would set them straight. Like, there would be no misogyny around her. She would be like, I don't think so. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you can almost imagine that exchange she has with Aaron Burr in the musical very easily being a Donna Josh moment. Like, Josh, you disgust me. Ah, so you've disgust me. Yes. (laughs) It is. It's very much like that. And, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, got a lot of inspiration from the West Wing when he wrote Hamilton the Musical, which I thought was really like such a cool thing. And you can see that every now and again, there'd be an episode of the West Wing and I'll hear a line that's that's later reflected in Hamilton the Musical. And it's it's such a cool little reflection there. I think it's awesome. I, I completely agree. And in addition to Angelica being able to help shut down the uh, the misogyny that happens all around Donna and CJ and stuff. CJ could just use some sister sisterly support from time to time. And Angelica has some experience protecting her sister from foolhardy men who take her for granted. Oh my God. No, that would be fantastic to see Angelica Schuyler and CJ Craig, you know, hanging out. <laughs> that would be amazing. Right. I know my CJ <laughs> like I, I know my own mind. Fan fiction. <laughs> yes, please. Please do that. I think I will. All right. Posse Comitatus aired on May 22nd, 2002 and was written by who else? 
Aaron Sorkin and directed by Alex Graves, who, like Christopher Misiano, we discussed last week, did north of 30 episodes over the run of the show. So he really knows how to how to make this show look good. And he does amazing, amazing work in this episode. It is so beautiful. Um, this is an incredibly powerful episode with the themes of personal choice and death dovetailing into the storytelling so beautifully. It honestly tops the list of my absolute favorite episodes. So when you didn't know which one you wanted, because usually I let the guests choose, but mm-hmm. you didn't have that much familiarity. I thought, oh, we got to do Posse Comitatus because it's I... just so incredibly good i watched this episode and i was just shocked that you were letting me talk about this incredibly important powerful episode it is so good and it is yeah what you were saying about the way it was shot and how it was directed i mean the scenes in this there are so many just shots that i could turn into screenshots and make the background of my desktop because they're so beautiful I know it is unbelievable, and it's done in this in this traditional West Wing style. But it really has uh, has almost this this ethereal beauty to it, and so much power to the writing. It is both written and directed with such an almost casual command of both the verbal and visual language. By the end, I just find myself speechless from it. You know, it is it is so incredibly good. And usually at the end of this, by the time I finish watching it, I'm just weeping uncontrollably. It's just yeah, I understand. So crazy. I don't see how you could keep the tears back, honestly. I've watched this. I know. I watched the episode a couple times, and it was just gut wrenching by the end. Honestly, I know it is so incredibly good. All right, well, let's hit the synopsis and get moving on this discussion. In this episode of The West Wing, the president plans the assassination of a Kumari defense minister suspected of terrorist activity. Charlie tries to get the woman who got him his job to fill Mrs. Landingham's position. Josh pushes a welfare reform vote through despite the consequences. Bartlett tangles with Governor Ritchie on a trip to New York to see a Broadway play. And CJ just can't catch a break. All right. So, Robbie, one of the things that, you know, we, we hit on a little bit in the opening is is how much inspiration Lin-Manuel Miranda took from the West Wing while writing the musical Hamilton. So you have all this experience looking at Hamilton, studying Hamilton, like, you know, this whole thing by heart. And now you've been binging through the West Wing. What are you seeing? Like, I'm really interested to see, like, I, I know Hamilton, like, you know, enough, like, I know the way everybody knows it, but you really know it. Are you seeing a lot of those reflections? Or those, are there moments where you're like, oh, that's from Hamilton? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. you go through life. And if you've spent as much time with these songs from Hamilton and American Musical as I have, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many words in the musical that you can you hear those words everywhere and it just makes you start going down the lines. They mention a horse right. and then suddenly my mind is going, I'm taking this horse by the reins, making red coats, redder with bloodstains, and I'm never going to stop until I make a drop, burn up, scatter the remains. I, and it's just <laughs> going to take me everywhere. Like it, Nothing doesn't remind me. There's Everything reminds me of Hamilton now. It's It's kind of a disease. But, yeah, I imagine because you must have it like really like on the brain, and I'm I'm curious about what the experiences of watching The West Wing. You know, I mean, do you now that you think about Hamilton when you go back to Hamilton, has the West Wing kind of changed or, or kind of like added another layer to your appreciation of Hamilton the musical? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I I see them as two very different things, but when I think mm-hmm. of them in the same mindset, the, the parallels are incredible. I mean, yeah. right down to uh, there's a song in the second act called The Room Where It Happens, where Aaron right. Burr is 
is wishing that he could be in the room where decisions are being made. In the, mm-hmm. in, and whether you're talking about the Situation Room or the Oval Office, wherever this is on the West Wing, you see the, the art of the compromise and mm-hmm. how the sausage gets made. And it's not yes. always the prettiest thing. And mm-hmm. so you, you see the, the concepts there. You see the battles back and forth, like the hip-hop battles that are cabinet meetings for Hamilton and American Musical mm-hmm. very easily translate into the West Wing as people having different ideas back and forth and back and forth with the the just the verbal conflict that you have of ideas hitting one another and the insults that are just thrown at each other with such mm-hmm. such sass and pace of the pace of uh, like something really really fast and you have <laughs> I mean words fail me but then you have all of these parallels and themes and concepts and the ideas um, but then there are also just literal phrases that are brought up again. I mean, you and your mm-hmm. daughter covered an episode recently where Sam was looking for a mind at work, which yep. is a line mm-hmm. Lynn directly lifted for Angelica. There are other lines here and there that Lynn obviously picked up and put into the musical. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's He hasn't been secretive about his love affair with the West Wing, honestly. Have you, have you watched that video that he wrote of a small rap he did called What's Next for the West oh, Wing? Oh, yes. That is amazing. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for anybody who may not have seen it. But that was unbelievable. Everything that Lin-Manuel Miranda does is just so... And, and I think part of it that, that really speaks to people and that people respond so well to him is how incredibly genuine he is. Yes. And and here we have, you know, in both The West Wing and in, um, and in uh, Hamilton the Musical, we've got this sense of it's about ideas and it's about ideals. And even when people are playing a political game, you know, it's always genuinely about the thing they're talking about. You know, um, uh, sometimes, yeah. you know, in the West Wing, we'll have these these moments of, of cynical political maneuvering, you know, mm-hmm. um, which can happen. And I mean, that's part of the story. That's part of what the West Wing is about. I mean, that's that's, you know, that's an element there. But for the most part, what we see in the West Wing are these people who are genuine and earnest and really believe in everything that they're doing. Like one of the things I love about the character of Toby is that he will screw things up, you know, like, like royally often, you know, but he always does it in the service of something that he genuinely believes is the right thing to do. And so often we see with these, you know, political games that people play is that it's always about the win. It's always about, you know, getting the other guy and, and, you know, making a, a point for your team without necessarily it being about what happens then? You know, like, how yeah. is this affecting? How is this about government? And what I love about Hamilton the Musical and The West Wing is that it really is about having these people who believe genuinely that what they're fighting for is the best thing for the country, you know, and that we're living in this place of ideals and ideas and a mind at work, you know, and I, I love that. I think that it's something that, you know, we're, we're so cynical about our politics now. It's so refreshing to see that in both of these, you know, pieces of art. Yeah. And you can imagine people like John Lawrence saying, staying home with Hamilton and write essay, writing essays against slavery, fitting in with these oh, people sure. who who are who are putting forward their ideas, willing to fight for their ideas. I think that one of the differences you were talking about there, about the difference between the game of politics and the art, mm-hmm. or the actual act of governing. Hamilton yeah. was really good at governing and writing legislation and creating a government. I mean, he built the 
Coast Guard, the Treasury Department, mm-hmm. the I mean, he assumed states' debts, he established mm-hmm. a national bank, he did these incredible, huge things, but the man couldn't do PR for anything. Right. He was t- <laughs> It's he- like you get one or the other. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But then Aaron Burr's the like textbook mm-hmm. politician walking around yeah. kissing babies. He's the one that is on stage just smoothly like talk less, smile more. Don't let them know mm-hmm. what you're against or what you for what you're for. So that's he's the sly maneuvering uh, Slytherin who gets in there and he's willing to right. uh, to stand up or he's not willing to stand up for anything and Hamilton attacks mm-hmm. him for that saying if you don't stand for anything what will you fall for right. and so you have mm-hmm. these two people who Hamilton believes in his ideals so so much and he will fight for them sacrificing even his own integrity at times and sure. his own mm-hmm. image and he's seen as someone that's temperamentally unfit at times, mm-hmm. but then these other people who are a little bit better at politics come in and they get stuff done. And I mean, a couple of them get to be president or vice president. Burr gets to be vice president. Thomas Jefferson right. gets to be president. Um, and Hamilton, because of his temperament and his attitude, will never be president. And right, but he's genuine. Like that's and yes. that's a really neat kind of thing. Like you know, the idea of if you are genuine, if you are honest, you know, what are the things that you sacrifice? to have that you know it's like you can't be both you can't be good at the PR and good at the game and also you know be genuine to your ideals and I think we see some of that playing out in this episode of the West Wing but before we get there I have to say like this episode really struck me when I was thinking about Hamilton this episode feels and it has some of that kind of heart-wrenching you know reality of it's quiet uptown you know in in Hamilton that that it's that moment of you know there's all this political maneuvering and then the promise of what could have been gets cut down by reality and consequence and and there's always a price to pay you know and the the it's quiet uptown song in hamilton always kills me and it makes me feel like very similar to the way that the last 15 minutes of this episode made me feel just like just wrenched and gutted you know and i was wondering if if you saw that kind of like that that similar kind of emotional space there well i try not to think of it's quiet up time uptown oh, very often because me. of the emotional so hard burden that mm-hmm. comes with it but yeah <laughs> i i absolutely feel that i mean in it's quiet uptown you have a you have parents who just lost their child and mm-hmm. there there are moments that the words don't reach there's a grief too powerful to name and you see, really, especially in the last scenes of this episode, you mm-hmm. see CJ coming completely full circle from where she starts the episode. The beginning of the episode, yeah. she's completely jovial. She's laughing at the press mm-hmm. briefing. She's, uh, I mean, she's there truly happy in mm-hmm. a way that she hasn't been for several episodes, in a way that, that West Wing doesn't let her be very often. Right, exactly. But <laughs> the, the opening laughter she has with the press mm-hmm. Compared to the closing scene there, the heartbreaking bookend there where she starts out at some of the happiest we've seen her, surrounded by people, laughing at jokes. But then at the end, she's alone, sobbing on a bench in Times Square, having lost Mm -hmm. something that really meant a lot to her. In scene one, she's literally looking to the future, planning her day. And in the last scene, she has no idea whatsoever to do next. She's lost someone who matters to her, and the future no longer looks certain. She doesn't have words. She couldn't even believe when someone tells her about Simon. I mean, we'll we'll get into that, I'm sure, in a minute. But the loss that she feels is so, so genuine. And she, Mm -hmm. I mean, she's clearly grieving right now. She hasn't had 
time in the 10 seconds they show of her getting the right. news. Like she hasn't have had time to understand or comprehend yet. She just knows that she doesn't know what comes next. It's quiet right. uptown is the moment where these, these two parents are trying to reconcile with each other after mm-hmm. Hamilton had an affair, but then also mm-hmm. dealing with the loss of a kid and trying to remember that the world goes on. And death mm-hmm. doesn't discriminate between the sinners yeah. and the saints. It takes mm-hmm. and it takes and it takes. <laughs> and you have this feeling that you're, you're looking for a new normal. The pain, mm-hmm. the pain never goes away. But eventually, right. with time, you get used to the new normal. And mm-hmm. the, the pain that you see CJ struggling with there is her trying to understand, what is my life going to look like now? In, mm-hmm. in It's Quiet Uptown, they're literally changing their location in life they're moving yeah. everything is changing and they're trying to find a way to wrestle with how how to move on and cj's doing the same mm-hmm. thing at the end of this episode yeah it's just i i saw some similarities there just in the way that both of those those uh things made me feel you know and it was so incredibly powerful um so if this hasn't inspired absolutely everyone to go out and and subscribe to hamilton the podcast and listen to every single episode then i don't even know what i can do for you people like honestly so they've all got to go and listen to that it's a a fantastic podcast and there are so many great insights on um on hamilton which is so wonderful but we are here to talk about this episode of the West Wing. So yes. I wanted to start talking about this, um, God, this struggle for Bartlett to to deal with with what he's facing with the this assassination of the Kumari defense minister. We kind of we go right into the Situation Room in the beginning, and you know, and they're they're laying out the plan for him. This isn't a situation where you need to know as little as possible. The law requires that you know everything. Doesn't the law also require that I not assassinate someone? Yes. Political assassination is banned by executive order. Two executive orders, as a matter of fact. I know. One of them was mine. The idea that he has to go against a law that he put in place, that he's in this position where... He can't, you know, have this guy tried. He can't go through any other channels. And if he lets this guy go, it risks so many lives, you know, because this guy is is proven to be a terrorist. So we have that wonderful, you know, discussion with Bartlett and Fitzwallis talking about how they would, um, how they have to approach this. They can't use the military, all that stuff. Assume for a second I say yes. How do we do it? Fitz walks up to him with a gun? No, uh, it can't be military. Why? The Posse Comitatus Act of 1878 prohibits the military from civilian law enforcement. And it can't happen on American soil. The things we choose to care about. So I was wondering what you thought about about this kind of whole storyline and how we we open with this deep internal conflict for the president that he you can see him struggling with in every single scene. And it's so beautifully done. Yeah, um, I appreciate that they make it an internal conflict because they could have mm-hmm. they could have told this story with an external conflict of him saying, okay, I need to kill Sharif. How do I get around the laws that say I can't do it? Right. It could have been mm-hmm. Bartlett versus the law. But in that meeting, they just flat out say, hey, Bartlett, this is how it's going to be done. We wanted to lay out the rules. And he's just incredulous. Like, there are rules to these things. He's almost perturbed yes. at first. The mm-hmm. solution, he's upset that the solution is so complex. It's It's been seen in this season that he deals in moral absolutes. He wants something mm-hmm. to be right and something to be wrong. And he just can't mm-hmm. believe how many hoops he has to jump through to get to doing what is right. He he says mm-hmm. that uh, 
like the things we choose to care about. And he has this exasperation about all the rules that they keep giving him. And he, he's almost a little, uh, I mean, he struck me as incredulous throughout some of the meetings saying, really, oh, yeah. I can't do that. I can't do this. And it's like, he's, he's struggling with the fact that he's a man who doesn't frequently get told that he can't do something. And now he's being told, right. you can't do this. You can't do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. Um, and so he, he, in the very last moment of that scene, he mm-hmm. throws the pen back on the table and says, We give him it boxed. Tell him to put it in a box. It's just like he's trying to assert his authority, saying, Well, there's one thing I can control. It's how we deliver <laughs> this pen to Sharif. And so he tries to, it's like everything's out of his control, but he does that. But I think that the way they structure that as an internal conflict is helpful because they say the National Security Act exists because only a president can order a covert action but that it heightens the internal conflict for president for president bartlett saying that he is the only person who can make the call they use mm-hmm. the laws to heighten the stakes he has yes. two executive orders there banning politic- political assassination and bartlett says yeah one of them was mine i internally <laughs> i struggle with that because i mean clearly he <laughs> believed it he's not the kind of guy that issues an executive order he doesn't believe in he's right. shown that he's the kind of guy who stands up for his beliefs and pushes those forward whenever we're letting bartlett be bartlett and so it takes it to that um like leo takes the uh, the legal weight off of him by reminding him that mm-hmm. an executive order be, can be circumvented by the executive himself and Mm -hmm. so it remains an internal conflict even while they're laying all these laws there so it's not the president versus the law it's an internally and it reminded me of a moment early on in the west wing where he's struggling with whether or not to pardon someone on death row oh yeah and Mm -hmm. how he i mean personally i'm an avowed opponent to the death penalty and pardon power is one of those powers i would probably abuse if i were president but bartlett (laughs) He chose not to do so, and then he yeah. immediately felt the need to confess his sins as if because mm-hmm. he didn't do something. And this is that same kind of moment all over again. Bartlett must find what is right because that's the kind of man he is. And Leo eventually has to emphasize in this story arc that the president sometimes has to do what is morally wrong mm-hmm. for the social good, and it's because President Bartlett won. And yeah. so this whole conflict of... Him wanting to do what's right, but struggling with even knowing what the right thing to do is, is, is incredibly difficult. And I, I think that this A plot, so to speak, is really provocative and mm-hmm. does a lot of things philosophically about just looking for moral absolutes in the middle of the gray. Mm-hmm. No, I, I love I love the way that they set this up. And it is this this internal everybody's giving him all of his options. But you know, I mean, obviously, like, it seems like everybody is like pro assassination, like, you know, they're very clear that that the ultimate, you know, utilitarian thing to do um, is to is to, you know, save the most lives possible by ending this one life, you know? Yeah. Um, but the, these moments, like when he throws down the pen and says, you got to put it in a box when he won't shake the guy's hand he says not in the oval office yes. like that there's some things that he won't shake his hand in the oval office um and uh, and then he goes in to talk to his therapist which i love i love the president with his therapist yes. and, and adam arkin is so amazing in this role but he sits down with him and you know and he has a little conversation about you know i can't tell you if i'm planning on you know committing a crime or whatever um but before that, they have this this nice discussion of the War of the Roses. There's also singing. That's a musical. No, but they're going to sing from time to time. And one of the songs is a song I love. I can't think of the name now, but it's an Edwardian. It always reminds me. It makes me think of college. Like, I don't know, like 
They should be singing it in the dining hall at Christ College at Cambridge. The chorus is, and victorious in war shall be made glorious in peace. I was just singing it this morning. And I love how this relates to his internal conflict. This idea of victory in war creating glorious peace feels almost like an internal conflict just in the words themselves, the idea that it takes war to create peace, that there is a, a terrible thing that you must do, but there is a greater good at the end of it. But how can you justify the things that you must do to get to that greater good? Um, yeah. And it also shows that spinning the truth, you know, <laughs> spinning the reality, putting a, a, a you know, shine on the story that you tell about what you've done, um, has been around for centuries and centuries. So right. really, I love that interaction with Stanley. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and I, I think it's the episode immediately leading into Posse Comitatus where Fitz and Leo are in the sit room and they, Fitz says, hey, I am one of the war, like the world's foremost leaders of military, one of the leading military minds in the world. Mm -hmm. And I can't distinguish between peacetime and wartime. Mm -hmm. And with that conflict, just lingering over this entire season, honestly, with terrorism being an ongoing theme oh, yeah. um, with mm -hmm. the way we deal with this. I mean, this aired in 2002, you said, right? So yeah, short, immediately after the aftermath of it was fresh. 11. Yeah. And so this is, this is all real stuff. We're trying to struggle with how do we have peace and war and what does, what does the difference look like? And to me, this concept that Bartlett's talking about where he says victorious in war means glorious in peace and, it's like that's the ideal world he wants to believe in. That's the world mm -hmm. he wants to believe in, that he can have glorious peace now because he won. But yeah. he fought the fight to be president, and so where's the peace? Now he has to fight to pass the welfare bill. Well, where's the peace mm -hmm. after that? Well, now he has to fight to get, I mean, whether we're talking about Mendoza on the bench or the next fight or the next fight, whatever right. he's fighting for, he const the battles don't end politically, and then the battles don't end internationally. The battles just don't seem to end now in the world we're living in. I mean, mm -hmm. Fitz used the example of how he there was a time when if the enemy laid down his sword, you knew that the war was over. President mm -hmm. Bartlett is saying that I wish I could be glorious in peace, but all I feel right now is is the war, like... Mm -hmm. Where is that peace? Where is that glory? He's he's thinking back to the days of college when he had this idealized view of what it might have been like to to overcome these trials and to have the peace eventually. But that ideal isn't lining up with his reality. And I think it's really, really eating at him in this episode. Yeah, no, I think it's wonderful. And one of the best things that you can do as a writer is force a character to make a really difficult choice. Uh, between two things that are equally wonderful and that they want is is always good. But to, to force a character to choose between two equally terrible things, yeah. you know, um, and when they make that choice, it tells you who that character is, you know, and the harder the choice, the more we learn about about who this person is. And so Bartlett trying to struggle, you know, with making this decision. Um, and when he finally makes the choice, like no matter which way he goes, there's almost that twinge of, of disappointment in him, you know, like you chose and no matter what you did. I would have felt like it was the wrong choice in a, in a little way, one way or the other. You know, it always would have felt wrong. It would have felt mm -hmm. it feels wrong to kill him and it feels wrong to let him go and be free to to kill lots of other people. And then at the play, 
Oh, God, that discussion with Leo. Civilians get trials. I'd argue he's not a civilian. And he wants so badly to, like, what he really wants to do is bring this guy to justice. He wants that ideal world. Exactly. The the world that he fights for, that glorious peace that he fights for, but really is just uh, in the story, the glorious peace, the fact that, that, you know, Fitz can't tell the difference between war and peace. Like it's, it doesn't exist. You know, it's just part of the story that they tell and, and you get to tell the story afterward, but the person who lives it has to understand that there's, there's some things that you just pay, you know, so high a price to maintain. Um, and it's it's part of your soul. And there's this wonderful moment between uh, between Leo and Bartlett where they're really they're talking almost theology. Who is the monk who wrote? I don't always know the right thing to do, Lord, but I think the fact that I want to please you pleases you. Which is a really it's kind of a nice thing to be like. I may not do the right thing. You know, I may not make this work. I might screw all of this up, but I tried to do the right thing and my intentions were good and that and that somehow, you know, that's got to count for something. And then, of course, we end that interaction with Bartlett making the choice. It's absolutely wrong. I know. But you have to do it anyway. Why? Because you won. Take him. Yeah, that and the talking about the direction and the cinematography, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. fact that Leo is behind the president's shoulders in that silhouetted scene mm-hmm. is just adding impact to the shadows being cast over him. It, it's mm-hmm. an, it's incredible there. But I, I think that was Thomas Merton's prayer, right? I mean, yes. he's the monk. Yes. Thomas Merton was a, a, a Trappist monk, a dedicated opponent to the Vietnam War. He believed mm-hmm. in nuclear proliferation. He wanted to fight for a world of peace and his his right I mean I have a whole bookshelf with all of his writings on it in my oh, wow. in my own office. It is just so good. His story in the Seven Story Mountain that he wrote is more of an mm-hmm. autobiographical story. He's a poet, which appeals to me a lot. He's a theopoetic author who mm-hmm. writes theology and poetry quite a bit and he wrestles wow. with those con- those concepts all the time of saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, I I don't know what is right and wrong. I don't know yeah. what to do, but I want to do what's right. And surely that mm-hmm. has to count for something. I yes. I think I think of the way that Aaron Sorkin ended the previous season and how he's ending this season. It's uh, it's very interesting that he's putting this weight of this this real philosophical con- like conundrum in front of our moral absolutist president who mm-hmm. like and who struggled in two the cathedrals with his with his faith and he just outright mm-hmm. disavows God and says, you feckless thug. Yeah. Oh, and he's wrestling man. with that. And it's so, mm-hmm. so potent and so profound and so powerful to see a man who, who hinges so much on right and wrong and doing what is mm-hmm. right, wrestling with the reality that his world doesn't line up with that. And here he's doing the same thing. And you reference the, with Leo pointing him back to the Thomas Merton prayer and mm-hmm. reminding him about the struggle we have, it, it puts me into a place of studying the Psalms like theologically in the scriptures mm-hmm. where you have people in the Hebrew Bible who are, who are praying to God these inspired prayers that say, God, I don't even feel like you're listening anymore, but I'm still going to you with my, with my feelings because this is what my mm-hmm. heart feels. 
even though it's not pretty, I'm putting it in front of you and do what it do with it what you will. But there's some really powerful prayers in even the Bible, biblical literature that mm-hmm. mirror what what uh, President Bartlett is going through in both two cathedrals and in Posse Comitatus. And the, the inner mm-hmm. struggle means so much. And I think Aaron Sorkin does a great job of highlighting that in both of those episodes. I, I see a lot of parallels there. Oh, absolutely. And I think the struggle because we have, you know, President Bartlett is very strongly a man of faith, you know, I mean, he's a, he's a Catholic president, um, yep. which, you know, was a big deal. It's it's another reference to, you know, JFK, he yes, is he's kind yes. of an amalgam of a handful of, um, of presidents that uh, the Aaron Sorkin kind of wanted to examine. Yeah, uh, sometimes in the story, sometimes he's a little more of the Bobby Kennedy than the John Kennedy in the sense that he's less the image and more the just let's say what is right and fight for what is and right. The, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyways, we did we digress. You're absolutely yes. right. I love I love John F. Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's a lot of good stuff there, and I think that we make President Bartlett so so strongly a man of faith, so strongly a man of ideals and of belief, mm-hmm. you know, and then put him in these positions where he has to question, you know, everything that he believes in, yeah. and and you know what what does this mean to be put in, in this position where I have to make these, where these are the choices, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that's, it's uh, it's really tough. Yeah, it is. And that's, but this faith thing is also tied into the very reason the president went to the play today. He was mm-hmm. doing this for the church and he was doing this with Catholic charities or whatever the organization yep. was. And he wasn't going to insult the church by not coming to this play with them. And so mm-hmm. it was a, like even now when he's struggling with all of this he's still a very devout man showing mm-hmm. showing who he is and what he believes yeah no it's it's such an incredibly powerful storyline and is honestly one of my favorite things that they do with Jed Bartlett throughout the run of the series i i love what this whole thing does for his character and for him as a man and when you see him make that impossible choice which which from the beginning was the only choice he was ever going to make like we're watching him struggle with this but we know how this is all going to end you know and uh and it is it's such a struggle and it's so hard but it's 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 wonderful to watch him go through that and i think that aaron sorkin has has executed that so beautifully and it's so heartbreaking um so now let's let's move into a slightly lighter topic yes please um i love i love debbie fitterer yes so i didn't love her at first but it was more of that um do you watch doctor who at all okay so Mm -hmm. you know that feeling you get every time they tell you that the doctor's leaving you're like yes. they introduce a new doctor and you're like okay who's mm-hmm. this guy who's this exactly. person gonna be or the new companion <laughs> on the show it's like okay but yeah, yeah you're not amy or you're not my rose or whoever mm-hmm. your companion or your doctor is it's very difficult to get over that initial loss then yes. so i judged debbie fitterer against mrs landingham and i was like mm-hmm. I, you're not her you're not her <laughs> And so I, I I had to put that aside for a minute. And when I yeah. watched, I was like, this is this is actually really fun. It's a lighthearted counterpoint to all of the heaviness that's happening. Yeah, no, which is really nice because there is so much 
really heavy stuff, even though we open, you know, like you mentioned before with CJ and she's joking and it's basically like, you know, open mic night in the, in the press <laughs> conference. And, uh, she's fantastic. And then, you know, we get Lily Tomlin who I adore every time she shows up anywhere, she makes my heart happy. And I've always loved Lily Tomlin. So to see her in this role was just amazing. Um, and I, I think it's so funny when Charlie shows up at her house and she slams the door in his face <laughs> and she doesn't want him there, but he believes in her and he pushes her and it's, it's so fun. And the thing is, is that Aaron Sorkin loves this whole trope. He loves the guy who will not take no for an answer. And usually he does it in ways that are, that are kind of icky, that are, that are really kind of ignoring mm. a woman's right to say no. But in this particular, because it's not a romantic or a sexual conquest, because, because as we find out later on, Charlie feels a responsibility to this woman and for this woman. But he shows up at her house and lists everything she's ever done professionally and it is impressive <laughs> and then she comes back with him with you know i raise alpacas because i don't work for anyone charlie i'm my own boss i set my sail and then go that particular direction you do yes how's the sailing been i beg your pardon how's business i'll admit i got off to a rocky start what'd you try gambling didn't work out no but all that's changed because now I'm you're an alpaca farmer are you serious? It's the world's finest livestock investment, Charlie. I just, I love that. And that dialogue is so, so beautiful. And the thing you were saying before about, you know, she's not Mrs. Landingham, actually for me is, is a good thing because, you know, when a character gets replaced in a show, um, it's really important to bring in somebody who has a completely different energy. Like on Cheers, we had Diane for five years, and then they brought in Kirstie Alley to play Rebecca. Oh, yeah, and Rebecca yeah. was a completely different character. So you didn't feel the loss of Diane so much, you know, because, because you had Rebecca and it was a different energy and it was different kinds of jokes and different kinds of stories that we were telling, which kind of reinvigorated the series. Um, there was a, a British series called Coupling. I don't know if you've ever seen it. No. Um, but they had this great character um, played by Richard Coyle, who was uh, this character of Jeff. And he was he had curly hair and he was quirky and he was weird and he was Welsh, you know, and he left, you know, a couple of seasons in and they replaced him with a guy named Oliver, who basically was like, you know, the poor man's Jeff. Like it was exactly the same character. He was weird and he was quirky and he had that curly hair. And it just felt wrong. And, and what I love about Debbie Fitterer is that she is so completely different from Dolores Lanningham, but at the same time, they're both serious business. Like they both have this, this incredible, like strong capability at the core of who they are. Um, and I don't think we get to see that as much. We we're sort of informed about it by all of the like very serious jobs that this woman has had, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but, but we see her, when she comes in, you know, for her interview and she is high. <laughs> you seem a little better than you were before. I took a pill. Why? Because I was a little nervous about coming back to the White House. You took a pill? I took a couple. Yeah, I, I love that Charlie just takes credit for it and rolls with it as well after the oh, yeah. interview and it fails. Okay. Okay, that was my fault. I didn't properly prepare you for the meeting. That was bad staff work. Before your next job interview with the president, I'm going to remind you that you probably don't want to be stoned. There's going to be a second interview? There's going to be as many as it takes. We're going to get this right. 
the thing that I love about this is that even in these lighter moments, even in this this story that is that is all about, you know, like it's just incredibly funny and Lily Tomlin is delightful. We have this this element of tragedy, this thread of tragedy running through all of this comedy. And I think that that ties in really well with the rest of the episode, with mm. all the stuff that's going on in the rest of the episode and how challenging and, and, and difficult it is, that because we have that sort of almost that harmonizing note of tragedy, even in the funny story, it makes it all really work together. I kind of love it. Yeah. And I think that you get to see in this particular story arc a another type of reaction to the fight and to the fight going mm-hmm. poorly, because you see the president and his internal conflict and his external conflict with Sharif. And you get to see Josh Mm -hmm. trying to fight with congressmen and trying to, I mean, arguing with Amy and you get to see those Mm -hmm. fights and you get to see how, how Josh gets a little depressed and upset about that. But then you see Debbie Fitterer and she is the casualty of the war already. She Mm -hmm. is already lost. She has already lost the things that mattered to her. She's fallen from, this place of prominence she's fallen so far that she doesn't you don't even get the impression that she recognizes herself i almost have to like it's almost like aaron sorgan wants me to believe that charlie has a superpower that he can see beyond what she's telling him into what Mm -hmm. she really thinks and feels and wants it's yeah it's it's the kind of thing that i don't believe when sorkin asks me to believe about danny can cannon yes but i do believe it when charlie is saying look you have something in you and I'm going to fight for you even when you are feeling like you just need to roll over and throw up, throw in the towel and give up and exactly. turn to gambling and turn to a alpaca farming from a brochure. Alpaca like, yes. like this is, this is the kind of thing that he believes in her. And I think it's important mm-hmm. to note that in a, in a, in an episode where Josh is very much having extra things piled on top of him and he's feeling alone in this fight, even the people that are supposed mm-hmm. to be the closest companions to him are really isolating him in this fight. And Bartlett is yeah. being told, you're alone in this fight. Charlie here is coming alongside someone saying, I'm going to fight for you. Even when oh, you... Oh, that's a really great yeah. pull. I like that. Yeah. No, I think that's fantastic. But I also love, like, we get this this moment at the end with Charlie and Bartlett. What's going on? Nothing, sir. I'll be arranging a second meeting with Deborah Fitterer when we get back to town. From this afternoon? Yes, sir. Are you pledging a fraternity or something? Because this would be a good one. Sir. What is it with you and this woman? She hired me. That's why she was fired. You know, here we've had this this wonderful, you know, funny, it's kind of lighthearted. Charlie's like, it's my fault. You're here stoned. I should have told you not to be stoned. You know, we get all of this wonderful humor. And then we see that Charlie feels a sense of responsibility and obligation to this woman who changed his life. It was because she insisted on sending him up to get that job, that his life is what it is right now, and that he feels this need to um, to pay that back, you know, to give back to her what she gave to him. I, I love that. I think that's such a, and it's we don't really understand that until right at the end. He says this one line to Bartlett and it completely recontextualizes everything that came before it. Yeah. And I was prepared for a lot of the heavy emotions in this particular episode. But I mm-hmm. they had been they'd been giving me these these false leads that this was going to be the the more optimistic, funny story story arc. And then they get to that moment where Charlie reveals that, hey, I'm the reason mm-hmm. she got fired. And then it's suddenly heavy again for me, not in a sad way, but in a way that's 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 like an encouraging, but still a yeah. weighty, weighty feeling where I, I think, oh, this thing that's lighthearted really has meaning. 
there's something yeah. important here and it it's powerful to Charlie and it's now suddenly you see a resolve in the president's face that he's thinking of this differently and it's mm-hmm. it's not something that's just a lighthearted stor- subplot it's now the thing that is okay Charlie yeah. is responsible and he he cares and mm-hmm. he's going to do something I also yeah, no. yeah I also think it's interesting Charlie's been following the president around for like, for what 3 years now and mm-hmm. so he's seen the president and how he makes decisions and it almost looks at times with his interactions with Debbie Fitterer like Charlie is officially taking on some things he's learned from the president saying you know oh, what certainly. I'm not taking no for an answer this is how it's going to be I don't care what you tell me <laughs> this is what's going to happen and and he absolutely <laughs> is I mean he's not the same character he was in episode three was it when he was introduced or whatever oh, yeah, it was? when he came in yeah he mm-hmm. is he's grown so much and i think his arc is honestly one of the biggest in the entire west wing oh yeah and it's wonderful i love charlie all the way through he's fantastic and it's it's wonderful to see him him grow and kind of do for her what she did for him yeah you know force she forced him into this position that changed his life and now he wants to do the same thing for her and i i love that the way that just with that one line the entire thing flips and it has a weight to the story that that makes it harmonize well with how how really heavy and deep everything else is. Um, speaking of heavy and deep, <laughs> I guess we can move on to talk about Simon, the Secret Service agent and uh, and CJ. Yeah. Um, I thought that if we I, I thought that if I rambled long enough earlier in the episode, we wouldn't have time to talk about this because it's so oh. sad. It it's is so incredibly sad. And out of all the guys that they put CJ with throughout the run of the West Wing, all the guys who aren't Toby, um, who is obviously <laughs> the OTP is CJ and Toby. I mean, I think everybody knows that. But um, but this guy, like Simon, is the one. I loved him. I love Mark Harmon in the role. It's all fantastic. They've got this, this wonderful dialogue, this wonderful banter, um, you know, when CJ tells him that she doesn't want him making the trip to New York. Listen, I was thinking there's really no reason for you to make the trip to New York. Yeah. I'm going to be traveling with the president the whole time. Can I say something? Sure. I'm not allowed to date a protectee. Who's trying to date you? I'm not allowed to kiss a protectee. Who's trying to kiss you? You did. No, I didn't. CJ, I'm trusted with a serious job. Aren't you not allowed to call a protectee by their first name? Yes, ma'am. I'm going to take Anthony home. There's really no reason for you to come to New York. See you on the plane. You know, and we have this added note of tragedy there because, of course, she tried to keep him from coming on the trip. Right. Um, and and after, you know, we get to the end of the episode, we see why that then, you know, gets recontextualized as even, you know, like this, this, this really lighthearted fun moment between them where they're having this romantic banter is actually also a note of tragedy, you know? Yeah, I, I appreciate, though, that... I mean, they could have taken this to the place where CJ feels completely responsible for this. Right. And it, mm-hmm. it is, I think it's important that she tried to tell him, don't go. And then that, I mean, he could have died defending her or whatever. He could have, they could have had a lot of different plot lines that they did that would have make, made CJ feel, feel guilt. But instead of guilt, mm-hmm. she just feels loss. Just, oh, just, yeah. just flat out loss. It is such a pure sense of loss, which is really, really wonderful. And I feel that loss, too, because, you know, Mark Harmon, they kill him off so he can go star on NCIS or whatever. <laughs> and Ainsley Hayes, uh, played by Emily Proctor, she went off to CSI Miami. And I think this is part of the reason why I have like a very deep felt resentment against police procedurals. <laughs> they take all the great people on the West Wing and like, you know, make them go away. And I hate that. <laughs> 
I can't blame you there. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little bit bitter. I'm not going to deny it. Um, and so we have this like this wonderful, you know, stuff between them then out on the street in New York. I've spent my adult life protecting people. You're the first person who's got me seriously thinking about switching sides. Oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. I think I've been a treat. Oh, yes, you have. A little Easter treat just for me. You seem a little riled. The first day, you've acted like this is all my fault. And that's a pretty tough case to make. I don't think any of it's your fault, and I appreciate everything you've done. I've got to say, there are times when it seems like you like me. I do like you. And then you just walk off to stick it to me and forget the personalities. It's just stupid. You said I do like you. I meant the other way. So did I. I tried to kiss you. You said you didn't. I was lying, you idiot. All right. I love the, the the tension in their bantering. It's so Aaron Sorkin to get that mm-hmm. the flirting in the argument. It's just so good. Yes. No, it's so wonderful. And that thing where he says, I watch you for three seconds at Barney's. And she's like, you watched me at Barney's? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just, it's so incredibly sweet. And it's so beautiful. And they have that lovely kiss. You know, she goes back into the theater. He goes off to get a Milky Way and a flower at a Korean grocery. Right. And that moment, you know, here he is. He's this, you know, Secret Service agent. He's in this, you know, regular moment of just being a guy. He happens to be the right guy at the wrong time, you know, walks in on this burglary, doesn't see the second guy, shoots, you know, one of the guys or gets the other guy down and uh, and then just is is killed and taken out. And then and then we have. Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, which should be banned from every movie or TV show ever because it's just, it's so powerful. It kills me. It runs underneath all of these. You know, we see Ron uh, telling CJ what happened with Simon and we, we hear her, the tragedy of it, and she's, you know, denying it and she doesn't understand. Somebody's made a mistake. He was just on his way to the field office. But it was, you know, listening to that music underneath this this moment with Simon's death kind of, you know, reverberating throughout. I mean, we, we see it, you know, later on with Amy and Josh while they're fighting. She picks up the call. We have Hallelujah underneath and she picks up the call and gets the news about Simon. Um, but it is... Oh, God, it's just so devastating, and it's so gutting. And at this point in the episode, we're not even done with all of the devastation. Yeah. <laughs> when I So I watched this episode right after you told mm-hmm. me that this would be a good one for me to cover with all the Broadway yeah. and everything. And so I watched it. I mm-hmm. skipped ahead a little bit to get there. And then I binged mm-hmm. everything running up to it after the fact. Yes. And mm-hmm. between the time that I watched it the first time and the time I watched it the second time, I forgot that the episode didn't end with... CJ on the bench in Times Square. It was such a powerful, yeah. huge, like huge does, moment. Right? Yeah. It, yeah, I can't distinguish between a plot B plot here because exactly. the Qumrani defense minister and Simon are such big plots. I know. Well, and they reflect each other in a lot of ways because we've got, you know, this guy who's a good guy, who's a stand-up guy, dies in this, you know, senseless act of violence that that is just a random thing, you know. Crime. And then we have this this orchestrated assassination, this deliberate act, yeah. you know, on the other side that we, we ride through that where we've got the, the music from the uh, the Broadway play from the the glorious in war, you know, or victorious in war, glorious in, um, in peace, uh, stuff that we get from, the, from that song in the play playing underneath, you know, this orchestrated, this planned, this deliberate 
assassination and death. And we have those reflecting each other, you know, between those two stories. And it's, it's so beautifully expressed and, and so wonderful side by side. But you do forget that we don't end on CJ. It feels like that should be the end of the episode. That's the big moment, mm-hmm. you know. But then we have this, it's almost like a, an epilogue that whispers back to that. Yeah. And it, you know, that this death and loss. Yeah. And it, and it kind of reminds me that of that theme that the rest of us have to keep going. Mm-hmm. That we yeah. don't get to stop our episode because we lost someone. I mean, I, in this moment, it, it felt very real to watch this the mm-hmm. second time and the third time to remember that. This loss has happened, and now yeah. not only does CJ have to figure out what to do next, Josh has to get the news, and the president is talking mm-hmm. to Richie, and he has this whole conversation about how this happened that night, and everyone mm-hmm. still has conflict. Everyone still has other yeah. stuff to do, and the rest of the world is still spinning. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's difficult. I know. It's, 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 it is that, that feeling, though, like where you know, why is, why is everybody continuing on? Why is the, the world still, why is time still moving? Like this thing has happened. Don't you know, you know? Right, exactly. Um, and that's where I get that, that feeling from, you know, it's quiet uptown from that, like nothing is the same. Everybody's wandering around, but nothing is ever going to be the same again, you know, after this, this tragic event. And, and all of that is expressed. All of that, you, you feel it, you know, even though it's not literally in the text of the episode, like the, the subtext and every Everything that that's being reflected between all of these things that are happening at the end are, are so beautifully expressed in this episode. It's just it's amazing. Um, I, I I'm in love with this episode. Yeah, it really. Yeah, it's such a dense episode. You know, when you watch it, yeah. it it just keeps going nonstop. It's a no- typical Sorkin packed mm-hmm. everything in there. But then the way you were talking about the parallels and the the contrasts mm-hmm. and the way things work together and they don't. There's so many balls in the air and none of them drop and he mm-hmm. juggles them so perfectly. Everything is going through this and you you don't even remember how many plots are in this episode. We haven't even we haven't even touched much on Amy and Josh. I know. Well, let's go ahead and hop over to Amy and Josh, because this is also one of these things that's that's fun and funny. You know, they have that lovely little, you know, bit about the, the burnt toast giving her cancer. And that's why she eats <laughs> egg whites. You know? I don't think that's how science works. <laughs> we <laughs> I, I'm not sure it's how science works, but I think it's how Amy works. That, I think for Amy Gardner, that may be in reality. <laughs> Absolutely. But I love her in this. She's she's tough and she's smart. She doesn't let Josh get away with anything. And we have this great, you know, interaction between them. And it's it's an intellectual argument, which we see a lot in the West Wing. And one of the things that I, you know, with the West Wing, that's, that's always sort of a little bit of a problem for me is that sometimes some of these stories get over-intellectualized and we don't have personal stakes. Mm. But here we have Josh and Amy talking about this welfare reform bill, but everything is represented in the personal stakes where, you know, he's trying to explain to her that they have to authorize welfare. You understand we have to authorize welfare one way or another. You got to do it every six years. Providing something to make you think I'm dumb. When she says that to him, it brings like it just shifts the focus that this is, yes, an intellectual conversation. But for both of them, they're on opposite sides of this argument and it's personal. Yeah, and the stakes you were talking about really matter in this relationship mm-hmm. because, I mean, they're in a relationship now, for better or worse, whatever you think yeah. of that. <laughs> right. Um, but, I mean, yeah, it's it's going to change their personal life and their, I mean, and their political professional life. I mean, at the end mm-hmm. of this, if Josh wins, 
Amy loses her job. And how do you go home to the person who got you fired at the end of the day? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I like that because with with Bartlett, we have this this really, you know, strong sense of internal conflict. We have this he's he's trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. And he's struggling and struggling with it. And with Josh, he does have a choice before him. I mean, he could fumble it, you know, for his girlfriend and and for you know, the greater good, because Josh says, we don't like the marriage incentives either. We don't like any of this stuff. But this is how the sausage gets made. We got to do it. We got to make it happen. It's a, it's an election year. And in order to get, you know, he's playing the game. And even though he, you know, agrees with her, you know, from the stance of what is the right thing, what is the best thing, his job, what he wants to do is get the president elected. And he knows what he has to do in order to play that game. So for for Josh, he's faced with a choice in the same way. But I don't think it doesn't seem to me and maybe maybe you saw it differently. But it doesn't seem to me like he struggles with that choice at all. Like he always knows exactly what he's going to do in this fight. You, You don't think Josh struggled as much as the president? Is that what you're saying? I don't think that he did. Did you yeah. see him struggling with it? No. I, I felt like he always was was very firm in what he was going to do. I think that he he wished that it didn't you know cost Amy something, but I yeah. think that that was never going to stop him. I, you know, it was hard for me to get a read on Josh through a lot of this episode because mm-hmm. it felt it feels through a lot of the West Wing like he is the poster boy for toxic masculinity, and yeah. <laughs> where his masculinity is so fragile that. When he does have someone as strong as Amy confronting mm-hmm. him and that he can't just walk all over, then he it kind of I was reading him as if he was kind of shut down almost mm-hmm. where he yeah. he sees this woman who has ideas that are just as incredible as his. And in fact, are his own ideas. He agrees with her, yeah. but he uh-huh. feels overwhelmed. He feel I felt like he felt a little defeated at times just because mm-hmm. he was of the way yeah. he was carrying himself through this whole thing when Toby looked at him and said hey do you mind if I do this I tell you this because we're going to blame Florida's delegation and Richie for the vote if it doesn't w- pass right. and then you have the whole um, an exchange where Toby says hey did I make this too hard for you hey did I put too much pressure on you with the vote no with the Richie meeting and the AP quote no I understand the president jumped up and down on you pretty hard last week. It's over, Toby. We won. Amy's incredibly employable, Josh. <laughs> All right. All right. He's almost emotionless, it seemed to me. Like, I, I don't believe that men can truly be emasculated by women. I mean, it's just such a silly concept to me in this idea. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it seems as if he's the kind of guy... Like, that's the thing he thinks he thinks he's dealing with, that he's with such a strong woman right now that... It's almost like in a lot of conversations and a lot of relationships that Sorkin writes, competence is capital and competence is it's a finite resource. And when you have a conversation in order for the woman to be elevated to the place of competence, I have to take competence from the man sometimes or vice Mm -hmm. versa, which is more frequently what happens where you have. I'm the one that is going to that I completely understand the the census and so I'm going to completely explain it to a CJ who knows absolutely right. nothing at all and so you rob one's <laughs> competence for the others and here I think Amy has the potential with Josh because Josh does have that resolve of what is right and knowing firmly from the beginning what he needs to do there's a potential for a relationship of equals there's a potential yeah. for that but it seems as mm-hmm. if some of I don't know if it's misogyny or if it's his 
just toxic masculinity or what it is. It could just be something completely personal or the personal stakes we just discussed earlier about the relationship being lost and he knows it. But whatever yeah. it is, I felt like he was just down the entire time. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't happy about it. Definitely he was not happy about it. But we have this moment where Donna comes in. You did all right, okay? I bought her boss. Yeah, that's how you had to win this one. You think her job's really in jeopardy? No, she'll lose it for sure. And he knows that, and he knows that all along. But I, I, I didn't see, like, I didn't see a moment with Josh where I felt like he was struggling with it. I yeah. felt like he was regretful, but he always knew what he was going to do. I think you're he right. always knew which side he was going to choose, you know? Yeah. Um, and then later we have this, this great, you know, um, interaction between the two of them where he's arguing with Amy in her apartment. We've got hallelujah still trailing underneath the, the clip here because of, of the death of Simon that we just kind of moved into this. What, what did you think I was going to do? I thought you were going to do this. And? And I didn't think it was going to work. She didn't think that he was going to win, yeah. but he won. You know, but it's like the two of them were locked in this this battle of wills, and they were both really good. But when you have a mutually exclusive conflict, somebody's got to lose. Yes, you know, absolutely. And I don't know. I've I've wrestled really hard with trying to make make their relationship work. Sometimes I can mm-hmm. believe it a little bit better. Sometimes I believe that Josh is the the dick who screws it all up. And then sometimes I believe it's Amy who won't believe in Josh. And so I go back Mm -hmm. and forth and it's either way it, I mean, it's it's such a problematic relationship (laughs) across the board, but well, yeah. And we get a very uneven Amy too. When we first get Amy, she's making balloon animals. She's like the manic pixie, you know, political operative. She's, she's, it's just weird, but I like Amy in this episode. I thought she was strong. I like how strong, I like how competent she is. She's making great arguments. There's this wonderful thing when she says, I congratulate you for punishing poor women as the symbol (laughs) of the strength of mainstream values, which is such a smackdown. Like, I love that. Yeah. And I love how smart she is and how capable she is. Um, So I actually, in this episode love her she's not my favorite in other places but here she's fantastic yeah you know and i i love the way she's written i, I like her uh, so i i typically do enjoy strong outspoken women who will say who mm-hmm. will just flat out say no you're wrong like like there's yeah. no compromise you don't need to paint it i'm not going to paint it in a pretty way for you and say, well, mm-hmm. if you, that's a good idea, but what about this other way? Like, I don't know. I mean, when I think of Liz, my girlfriend, she is someone who will just tell me when I'm wrong. And I appreciate yeah. that about her. Um, I think she would get really upset if I said anything about her being like Amy Gardner. I don't think she's her favorite character either, but, but oh. I do appreciate those well, moments. Strong and smart strong, and capable. Those are good and, qualities. And passionate yeah. about the things she believes mm-hmm. in. Yeah. No, Liz is wonderful. I think she is so fantastic. And, uh, and you guys are great together. So it's really fun to, to hear you say such wonderful things about her. Cause she's one of my favorite people. Um, so now we can, move on to like talking about a, a really minor subplot which is all the political theater theater going on with governor Ritchie and you know whether or not he's going to be at the broadway play and wanting to you know have an appearance with jed bartlett to make some political hay out of that um yeah. you know and we have uh, all of this stuff going on and sam and toby basically conspire to send the motorcade to prevent Richie from showing up at the play so that, that <laughs> Richie gets egg on his face with the Catholic charities. Yes. Um, and we have so that great moment where, uh, where Toby and he has this whole thing. That's just not how we play bridge. It's not how we say cricket. Oh, 
okay, but you're starting to freak me out a little bit. <laughs> I love that line. It is so weird, and it doesn't even feel that much like Toby, but I love that whole yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> I also appreciate it because they just, I mean, it's in response to them saying that the Bartlett administration is snobs and elitists, and he's like, yes. cricket and mm-hmm. bridge. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's really, really cute. And it's, I like that. And Sam's like, you're really very much freaking me out. Like, it's just such a cute little interaction with the two of them. And then later when Toby's on the phone with Josh, you know, where he's he's having that lovely conversation about, you know, did we did we put you through too much? Is this too hard? You know, and all that stuff. And and then um, and he says on the phone with Josh, yeah, we're going to send a motorcade. Oh, yeah, I guess we're going to need a reason. why." Yeah, Josh has a good point. <laughs> I appreciate that. I also think, I mean, this is an example of how how well structured the entire episode is because in the very first pr- mm-hmm. first press briefing in the opening scene of this episode CJ did make a comment saying I know completely full well that sending the presidential motorcade into Midtown Manhattan at 6630 is not going to be exactly a good thing for traffic it's not right. going to be helpful yes. and uh, so you see that planted in the very first monologue and then you see it i know come which back. is so beautifully and subtly done yeah. I, I love it. like this this episode is just almost flawless i don't i don't even think i've had a problem with anything <laughs> in this episode i've loved all of it which is very unusual for me because if you've heard jed bartlett is my president before if you've heard any other episodes <laughs> then you know that i will i will nitpick when there's something to pick on um but this is so fantastic and i i love when when rich she finally, you know, shows up like at the end and he doesn't get to have any of this, you know, political hay made because he was at a baseball game and he missed the Broadway play. Um, Bartlett sits down with him and tries to give him advice. He tries to help him. He's like, we should have a great debate, Rob. We owe it to everyone. When I was running as a governor, I didn't know anything. I made them start Bartlett College in my dining room two hours every morning on foreign affairs and the military. You can do that. How many different ways you think you're going to find to call me dumb? I wasn't, Ron. You know, and uh, and Richie is just, you know, kind of like a, a real jerk about it. And then, you know, Bartlett says, I wasn't trying to call you dumb. But you turn being unengaged into a zen-like thing, and you shouldn't enjoy it so much as all. And if it appears at times as if I don't like you, that's the only reason why. You're what my friends call a superior bitch. You're an academic elitist and a snob. You're uh, Hollywood. You're weak. You're liberal. And you can't be trusted. And if it appears from time to time as if I don't like you, well, those are just a few of the many reasons why. You know, it's like he has to one-up Bartlett with the many reasons why. And yeah. he takes that dig. Um, and they're so, you know, they go back and forth with this this sparring. And, and Bartlett is just looking at him like he's this annoying little bug. Like, you are not even registering on my radar. I'm trying to help you out, kid. And you're just, you know, you're beyond my help, right. you know? And and. And the fact that Richie goes into like a stump speech against Bartlett in the middle of this moment where the president has real legitimate problems to deal with. And he just told him about a, a secret agent or a yeah a secret service officer dying in the line of duty protecting CJ. I mean, the the cavalier attitude he has, boy, crime, I don't know. I mean, that whole yeah. concept of cavalier, like the nature mm-hmm. with which he approaches this conversation is completely different since we know all of the weight that is on top of the president. It reminds me of the difference that we talked about at the beginning of this episode between the act of governance and the game of politics. Because Richie, he's a governor. He should have, like, he should understand the weight of governing somewhat. But 
he's in the middle of a campaign. He's in campaign mode. He is here yeah. to mm-hmm. play the game against Bartlett, mm-hmm. and Bartlett just doesn't have time for it. Yeah, I mean, Bartlett is so far, like, the things that, that Bartlett is dealing with, you know, in this moment, the, the you know, the assassination being part of it, but also just having heard about Simon and his death, you know, that there's so much going on that he just looks at Richie like, you are seriously, literally the least of my problems right now. <laughs> like, I'm trying to help you out, dude. If you don't want to take a hand up, that's fine. I got bigger things. I got bigger fish to fry. You know, like he's got serious, serious stuff to do and serious work to do. Um, and then, of course, he throws back that lovely line, oh, crime boy is when I decided to kick your ass. And you see this moment. He walks away and Richie smiles, you know, so you get the sense that Richie was full of it, too, that he he does. You know, there is part of him that kind of likes and respects this president. Yeah, I I, I didn't know what to read in that smile. I thought it was more of a like a. I got you. I got an emotional reaction out of you after all. Yeah, maybe. But, maybe I got you. Yeah. But there's, yeah, there's, they're about to have a game. They're going to play. And um, we just found the one way to get President Bartlett up to the base. Like, he is now in the game. He is committed to defeating Richie. Throughout most of the season, he refused to acknowledge Richie. And then he had that moment with the green light, red light, where he insulted his intelligence with a gun metaphor to appeal to some of Richie's base anyways. But um, yeah, you have this whole struggle and now all of a sudden he is game on ready to engage. It's it's on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's such a wonderful, Oh God, I just, this whole episode was just fantastic for me. And, um, and I love, you know, the, the way that we move into that ending, the direction on this is so beautiful. And after we just had that, that incredibly moving, you know, musical moment with Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen and Simon's death, we move into this final movement of the Broadway play, this final song underneath the assassination of the, of the Kumari defense minister. Um, and it is, it's so beautiful and wonderful. And there's so many raw edges kind of, around this episode that actually add to this overall, you know, gestalt of everything that it is all together. And and by the time we get to the final credits on this, I'm just stunned at how powerful, how beautiful, how almost like note for note perfect this episode is. Um, I don't even know if I had, I don't think I had a single complaint. Yeah. Not even about the way the women were written. I think I did great. <laughs> That's <laughs> <It was> good. awesome. <laughs> yeah. And you're talking about the direction. It's every scene has something beautiful. It's so <sighs> well done, whether it's the yes. familiar the familiar scenes where we're walking through the White House mm-hmm. or the New York scenes where we're really in a L.A. street or whatever at the mm-hmm. L.A. theater. Yes. <laughs> making it look like a Broadway theater. Uh, anyways, when mm-hmm. you're in those places, they do a really great job of capturing it all. But even down to the imagery, because you got yeah. like the flowers that that Simon's buying in the store are red roses Mm -hmm. and white roses, which are symbolic of the two houses in the war of roses. When you have those two parties, Mm -hmm. these warring people trying to play the game of Thrones in the English civil Mm -hmm. war, they're fighting for the throne and one house represented, one family represented by the red roses, one by the white. And you have the whole conflict that's dramatized by Shakespeare. And Mm -hmm. you see that there are so many casualties in this war and senseless violence is happening. And the, I mean, you have this baffled King and he's trying to have Mm -hmm. a composed hallelujah. He's trying to be composed (laughs) throughout it all. And it's, but yeah, the imagery, the direction, the, the colors of this episode mm-hmm. very very interesting the shadows in the scene between Richie and the president 
Oh, yeah. 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 And in that surrounding of just rich, you know, rich colors, rich red, you know, the whole space. It's so beautifully, beautifully done. And so I just I can't say enough about how much I love this episode. And I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk about it. Yeah. I'm glad that you you came on to talk about it with me because it's really, really been fun and a great conversation. So that'll do it for this week's episode of Jed Bartlett is my president. Sadly, it's time to let the pills you took to garner up the courage to meet the president wear off a little bit and get back to the real world where there's real work to be done. But I hope this little break from reality has given you the inspiration to make the right choice whatever that choice may be. In the meantime, here's a little something-something from Thomas Merton. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing." Which I think is a nice, I think it's a really nice thing for him. He has him. a good it's, way. It's he has a good way with words. He really does. Well, thank you so much, Robbie Herlocker, for hanging out with me this week. Robbie, tell the good people where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Alpha Knight is my handle. And you can also find Hamilton the Podcast at graphocast.com, G-R-A-P-H-O-C-A-S-T.com, or on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, any place where you get your your podcast, you can find Hamilton the Podcast. Sure. Well, that's great. And I highly, highly recommend it to everybody. Everybody should listen to that podcast and should go through moment by moment, you know, the Hamilton soundtrack with you guys because it is an incredible, incredible experience. I will be back next week with Sharice Lepree, an assistant professor at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University and one of the sharpest cookies I've ever had the privilege to know in real life with our thoughts on episode nine of season three, The Women of Kumar, in which CJ struggles with the conflict between her job and her conscience. Until then, here's a word from your president and mine, Jed Bartlett. In the future, if you're wondering, crime, boy, I don't know, is when I decided to kick your ass. Jed Bartlett is My President is a Chipperish Media production. To get exclusive Chipperish content and access to a community of amazing people, go to patreon.com slash chipperish. All clips in this podcast were used under the fair use exemption for criticism and commentary of the U.S. Copyrights Act.